Cool. Well, good morning. Thank you. See, I get a welcome back. You didn't. I did. All right. <clears throat> so this morning's sermon is uh, on the, the tenth doctrine. Uh, it is the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, and the doctrine says, we believe that it is the privilege of all believers to be wholly sanctified so that our whole spirit and soul and body may be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is uh, unique in as much as while every other doctrine of the Salvation Army is based on Scripture, this is the only one to quote it in its entirety. It comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's the, uh, the priestly blessing or the doxology at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's how Paul signs off his letter. Uh, and so sanctification is an important part of Salvation Army doctrine. It is uh, one of the things that we're known for is being what is called a holiness movement. Uh, in case you skip the day in, in, in basic Greek class, uh, sanctification, holiness, saint, uh, all of them come from the same word. It's the, the Greek word hagios, means to be holy. So sanctification, holiness, all means uh, roughly the same thing. And so before we look at sanctification, we actually need to do just a little bit of a recap, and I just want to make sure that my thing was changing, and it is, so I'm good to go now, <clears throat> is uh, something that we looked at last time uh, was uh, the term justification. Do you remember us uh, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about sin and its consequences, but also the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and that we can stand justified in his sight. Uh, and we used the, the, the memory technique. You can remember the word justification uh, just as if I never sinned. Uh, and that was the, the word that uh, we use. It's a legal term, and it basically means that we have been found innocent and we are justified. And so the, the mental picture that you need is uh, the judge of the universe forgives our sins and declares us innocent through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the important part was that this was imputed innocence, not earned innocence, which is great news for us. You can do nothing to earn the forgiveness and grace of God. It is given to you by him as a free gift. So if you ever go to a church and they say, yeah, you can become a Christian, but you also need to X, Y, Z, go, mm, but I was at the Salvation Army and this weird guy in a uniform once said that we don't earn our justification, instead it is imputed to us through Jesus Christ. Martin Luther called it the great exchange, uh, and what it means is that we're not actually innocent, but rather that Christ imputes to us his good deeds, his total obedience, his perfection, and his holiness. So everything that is good in you is not you, it comes from your faith in Jesus Christ and through his deeds, obedience, and perfection. And so when God views us, he sees the perfection of Christ and not our imperfection. So that was sort of the, the last week on. Is everyone sort of caught up? Because uh, justification is important to where we're going with sanctification, living a holy life and being holy. So I used to have a go-to story for this. It was about a priest and an altar boy. However, 
due to recent things, I had to change the story a little bit so that people didn't get uncomfortable. There was a priest and a regular boy. The priest is in his uh, in the, the courtyard of a cathedral, and he's fixing a trellis. Do you all know what a trellis is? It's that like wood thing that the, the plants, and he's building one from scratch. And so day after day, he's in there with a hammer and a nail. And, uh, and, and, and the wood, and he's slowly building this tre- uh, trellis. And every day, this young boy comes in, could have been about six, seven years old, and he comes in and sits on a bench, doesn't say a word, and just watches. And after a couple of days, the priest notices that this kid is watching him. And he continues his work. And once the trellis was completely built and finished, the young boy let out a big sigh of disappointment. And the priest, wanting to know what's up, as I think we all would, turns to the boy and says, what were you here for? And the boy unabashedly said, I was waiting to see and to hear what a priest said when he hit his thumb with a hammer. We live in a world that seems to be constantly watching the Christian waiting for that slightest error, ready to pounce and jump on you and say, see, you're not a real Christian. You messed up. Friends, that is not what sanctification is. That's not what holiness is. And so as we move into today's sermon on sanctification, we're going to to really sort of dig into what this is. But I just want to write off the top, you can make a mistake. It doesn't mean that the love of God diminishes for you in one slightest percent. You can make a mistake. I've made lots of mistakes in my life. I've messed up. I've, I, I like to use the term stumbled on the path of sanctification. It doesn't mean God loves you less. What it means is it demonstrates how great the love and mercy and justice of God is, that even in our weaknesses, when we mess up, when we fail, he's still there for us. So we're going to move in to sanctification. Now, sanctification is not like justification in that it doesn't happen in a moment. The moment of your salvation was also the moment that you were justified. It it was an on-off sort of scenario. So when you go to a light switch and it's off and you switch it to on, it's a near instantaneous thing, right? It doesn't take a while for it to, to build up. Now, I know there are some scientific scholars and you'll be like, well, actually... The speed of light is blah, 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 blah. So it actually does take time. No, I mean, for the purposes of this particular uh, uh, illustration, it's instant. You click a light switch, it comes on, yes? And so uh, your justification, your right standing in front of a holy and just God happens instantaneously. Sanctification does not. And I'm going to be real honest with you. Life for us would be so much easier if it did. Right? If you were in a moment instantly sanctified, all traces of sin, all sinful impulses were removed, your brain patterns were completely reversed from their sinful state into a holy state, and you suddenly you could go through life without ever feeling the temptation of sin again, without ever sinning again, wouldn't that just be easy? Yes, but that's not the way it happens. Sanctification doesn't happen in a moment. Rather, from the moment of conversion until heaven, you are being sanctified. It is a continual process. Um, The book of Romans, uh, 
in chapter 8 says that uh, we are being conformed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And the, the Greek word conformed is like a, an artist with a, a chisel hammering out a piece of marble, slowly, slowly chiseling off chunks of stone to reveal the image underneath. And the image underneath is that of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit in your life is slowly chiseling off the sinful aspects of your nature to reveal Jesus underneath. And so that's sort of uh, what sanctification is, is a steady, relentless, sometimes maddeningly slow march towards perfection that we'll achieve once we die. We won't really get there this side of eternity. There are some people who come close. There are some people in this world that when they become a Christian, they get hit in the head with a brick and suddenly everything about their life completely changes. For those of you that didn't laugh, that was a Salvation Army joke. We have a guy called uh, Bringle uh, who got hit up the backside of the head with a brick uh, and actually formulated all of the Salvation Army positions on holiness. Uh, from that, that moment on, he lived a completely holy life. He wrote all of the books the Salvation Army still uses today on holiness. Uh, in fact, in his honor, we have something called the Bringle Institute of Holiness where salvationists come together to discuss holiness and its practical effects on our life. So... I forgot that sometimes my Salvation Army jokes don't work. <clears throat> Never mind. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what's fantastic about sanctification. It's not reliant on your work. It's not reliant on your good deeds. It's not reliant on your behavior. What it is reliant on is your obedience to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. When you are obedient to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit tells you, hey, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't go into that liquor store and rob it today. You know what? Maybe you shouldn't go into the liquor store and rob it. And then the next day, something less. Maybe you shouldn't be, you know, cursing out your parents who love you. Oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. And then the next day, maybe you shouldn't be. And the next day, maybe you shouldn't be. And maybe you shouldn't be. You're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit of God. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the verse that Bart read for us, uh, Colossians chapter 3. There are many verses in Scripture that detail the work of sanctification in our lives. But (coughs) today I've chosen Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses one through 10, sort of as the roadmap, if you will, for where we're going. Um, And so uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we're just going to read the the very first sentence here. If then you have been raised with Christ. End for a second. Pause. Sanctification is only for the adopted sons and daughters of God. Sanctification is only for the Christian. If you are not a believer, you are not in the process of being sanctified. Uh, you're in the pursuit of self-betterment. You're a self-instruction or self-building building yourself up. If you are not a Christian, you are pretty much just running full speed at a brick wall in the wrong direction. Because there is no amount of good that you can do that can compare to what the work of Christ can do in you and through you. Sanctification is not for the non-believer. It is only for the children of God alone. So, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That hidden with Christ is about your justification. And so what uh, what happens here, if you want to put it into a visual term, is that when you stand before the judge of the universe, God doesn't see you, he sees Christ, and your life, your uh, sinful deeds have been hidden with Christ. Does that make sense? I know sometimes the Bible uses language that's a little complicated to follow, uh, so I tr- I'm trying to, to break it down for you, but when it says that your life has been hidden in Christ, it can, oh, that's, no, that's your justification. That's your right standing in front of a holy God. Verse 4 continues, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, uh, you, uh, you two once walked uh, when you were living in them. This passage is a blueprint or a roadmap for how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, but I want to point out right there that it said that before you knew Christ, you were walking a path of wrath. Now, wrath is a scary word. You don't have to worry about it too much. It simply means the righteous response of a holy God towards sin. So if you're in a sinful state, yes, you do have to worry about it just a little bit. A lot of the times, and we're going to get to this uh, uh, hey, next week when we talk about uh, the doctrine of eternity, we're going to talk about the doctrine of wrath and what that means for the church. But today, what I want to do is just briefly set it up in your brains that wrath is not a petulant schoolchild taking his toys and going home. It's not a temper tantrum. So when you see that the wrath of God is going to be poured out in non-believers, it is a just response to sin. Now, some of you might know that I originally I come from another country. Would you believe it? I know I sound so naturalized with my accent. Fantastic. We actually met uh, a, a lovely lady on the cruise, sounded exactly like my mother from Australia, and I said, I don't sound like that, do I? And he assured me that I do not, which is great because some of the way, whew, just saying, Australians have the weirdest accents. I don't know how you all can understand me most of the time. (laughs) Where I come from, we have a queen. Queen Lizzie. Queen Elizabeth II. She's like 900 years old. Uh, But she is the monarch over over England, over Australia, and over uh, what's left of the British Empire, the Commonwealth. And the reason that I bring it up is because in a monarchy, if you do something against a king or a queen, if you uh, are treasonous towards them, do you know what happens to you? Uh, think Alice in Wonderland and what happens to a lot of, lot of playing cards in, in Alice in Wonderland with the Red Queen. You get sentenced to death. If, uh, in the old days, if you were treasonous, if you plotted against the monarchy, if you plotted against the throne, you were put to death. In this country, if you were found guilty of treason against the government of the United States, in some places you are put to death. Uh, am I wrong? I'm, right? Uh, so far, uh, some of you look like you're asleep. That's okay. But just you know, a little bit of affirmation goes a long, long way to get me off a point and onto the next one. So if you, cr- if you commit treason... And, and here's what's really interesting. 
is every American that I've met understands the basic principle that if you uh, are guilty of treason against the United States of America, you should be put to death for that treason. Most people know that and accept that. And so it's very interesting then to say, but what about treason against the holy God of the universe? Because that's what sin is. And God's wrath is the righteous response to that sin. And we'll get to that next week. But so you know when it says that we were walking in the the path of wrath, that's what it meant, that as sinners we were justly exposed to the wrath of God. So this passage that we're talking about in the book of Colossians is the blueprint or roadmap on how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Uh, And how does he sanctify us? We find that in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we can see that what the Holy Spirit does is it renews our mind. It changes the way we think. It changes uh, how we get to a place. Does that sort of make sense? And so uh, best illustration, have you ever moved houses but stayed in the same town? Uh, When you're driving, you get into a rhythm and into a knowledge and a pattern of a certain, uh, certain way you do things. You know that if you leave work, you drive down the road and you take a left at this set of lights and you drive a couple of blocks and then you turn right at the Walgreens and that's the way that you get home, right? If you ever move within a town, suddenly you get to that set of traffic lights and instead of turning left... You have to turn right and you have to actively renew your mind. Your brain has to change. It creates a neural pathway in your brain that says this is the right way to go and your sinful mind has that same sort of patterns, those same sort of neural pathways that says, no, this is the way you do it. And what happens when you become a Christian and you ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life The Holy Spirit starts renewing your mind and changing those patterns away from a path of sin to a way of righteousness. Does that make sense? See, he knows what's up. He knows that if he says amen, we get out of here quicker. He's he's my man. All right. And so what happens is the Holy Spirit is renewing our minds. And it brings me to... uh, Almost my final point is a couple of very fun words you don't hear often in society anymore. And the two terms are vivification and mortification. Now, mortification, most people sort of know what that means. Oh, I'm mortified. It means that you're embarrassed to the point of death. Right? That's what mortification means. Uh, vivification, uh, in, in fact, these, this is what these two things mean. Vivification means pursuing God, and mortification means putting sin to death. That was its original meaning before it sort of got taken into society and changed to being embarrassed. And so what happens is there was this group of people called the Puritans, and they did a lot of writing on these particular aspects and a lot of writing on the holiness movement. And these were the two terms that they came up with, And basically what they said is that vivification and mortification have to go hand in hand, one uh, uh, with the other. That it wasn't uh, wasn't kind of like uh, you don't put the cart before the horse, you don't start off pursuing God but still sinning off to the side because I'm pursuing God and I haven't got time for that mortification just yet. Or you don't... don't Put off the mortification over here and then, and then pursue God later. You have to do them hand in hand. Your life as a Christian, if you want to move down the path of sanctification, 
you need to pursue God as well as identify the sinful patterns and behaviors in your life and through the power of the Holy Spirit be transformed in your mind, have it renewed. All of this is extremely easy in theory. Practice, and Bart's smiling, he's laughing, he knows. In practice, vivification and mortification, pursuing God and putting off sin, is a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour struggle in making sure that we are following the will of God for our lives. The only things that I have found that makes the process easier, being in the word of God on a daily basis, praying, being in the presence of God on a daily basis, and listen, being in the fellowship of other believers, if you can, on a daily basis. I know that we live in a society that sort of changed the function of church to be that one thing you do every week. You know, you just on Sunday morning, you show up, you sit in a pew at 10.45, the guy behind the pulpit yells at you for a half an hour, and then you go home and you're fine, right? The fellowship of believers is not restricted just to this one meeting that we do once a week. When you get together over coffee with another believer, you turn your mind to things above and you ask each other, hey, how's... How's your vivification and mortification going? All right, you might not use those particular words. You ask someone how their life is going, don't you? You ask, you follow up with people. You know, you you told me last week that you were struggling with uh, your boss at work and, you know, you're getting angry at them. How's that going? You do life with each other. In the very first uh, sermon in the series, I explained that we follow a God, we worship a God who lives in uh, community, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live together in a perfect triune unity and a fellowship of community, and we were created in the image of God, and so you and I were created for that community. We were created to live together, not separate and isolated. Now, this has nothing to do with whether or not you're an introvert or an extrovert or or, or any of that kind of stuff. (coughs) It's not about whether you're good at at striking up a conversation with someone. There are ways of living in community with each other on a daily basis that I think as the church we need to get back to because it helps. Because what living in community does is creates a culture of accountability. Accountability, another word, not a lot of people like because it means someone is actually going to be holding me accountable for my actions. Interestingly enough, when you bring up accountability, what often is thrown at you is, but the Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. Yeah, it's true, it does say that. It continues on, actually. There's more in that sentence. For in the same manner that you judge, so too shall you be judged. Actually, it has a little bit of a clarification point on there that says, you know what, if you're going to go up to another believer and say, hey, I saw you cursing, like I heard you cursing at the, at the supermarket yesterday, you better not be cursing in the supermarket yourself. There's, there's a qualification on the judge, not lest ye be judged, that a lot of people tend to ignore. And then later on in, in uh, the epistles, the apostle Paul actually says, you have heard it said, judge not lest ye be judged, but I tell you the truth, 
it is not your job to judge those who are outside of the fellowship of believers, but to hold the fellowship of believers accountable to God. It's actually our scripture-given mandate for us to hold each other accountable as fellow believers. Now, like so many things, my mother was right, in that it is not what you say, but oftentimes how you say it. You walk up to a person, you get in their face, and you say, I heard you screaming at the Starbucks barista. You're going to create a little bit of conflict, no? It's not what you said, it's how you said it. But if I brought Bart over to the side and said, hey, Bart, I I noticed, man, you've been losing your temper a little more recently. Is everything okay? What can I do to help? I'm holding him accountable, but I'm doing it in a biblical way. There are then safeguards of that person that says, get out of my life, I'm good. Scripture actually says then you go find another brother or sister from the fellowship, and both of you go and do have the exact same conversation. There are things in place that are scriptural for it. But if you want to head down the road of sanctification, you want the Holy Spirit to transform your heart and your mind so that you are being conformed into the image of Jesus, you need vivification to pursue God daily. And you need mortification to put to death the sinful things in your life. And I'm telling you, you can't do it by yourself. It is a long road. It's a lonely road. And more often than not, it ends in the disaster of your soul. Man, that's a real happy way of ending it, isn't it? But Bart's going to come up and we're going to play the benediction. We're going to sing together. And this is what I want to challenge you this week. Take a mental inventory of how much time you spend with other believers, how much time you spend in the pursuit of God and in the putting to death of your sinful nature, how much time you're spending reading the Word of God, how much time you're spending in prayer. If it's not enough, up it. Here's the wonderful thing about Netflix. It'll be there after you read your Bible. It's not going anywhere. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself for the two greatest commandments. And if we don't do it in the church, how do we expect the people outside of the church to notice it? Love God, love others, spend time in community, and follow the path of sanctification of the renewing of your mind through the Holy Spirit. Amen? If you'd like to stand with me, we're going to sing our...